0: Just for our listening audience, Jeremy is wearing a NASA hat, which I think is a, a, a <laughs> quite literally a tip of the cap to the innovation angle. So uh, I do color commentary play by play on these pods as well, as you can tell. Oof. I like it. Hi, everybody. And welcome to The Human Element. This is Kara's podcast on modern marketing I know I always say I'm excited, but I am like extra special, excited today. I am joined by Christy Olson, who has a title of all time. This is a good one. Head of Evangelism for Search and Advertising at Microsoft. We're going to get into that in a second. And Jeremy Hull, SVP of Innovation at iProspect, one of our sister agencies here within Dentsu. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Christy, let's talk title a second. (laughs) Did they give this to you or did you help create this?
1: I helped with this one. Uh, <laughs> it's better than the standard Microsoft titles, which is something like Senior Corporate Communications Manager and Marketing Strategy. So,
0: I got you. Well, that's a good one. I love it. I love it. Before we dive into the report that you guys have just jointly published, which is the reason I'm, I'm having you here, and thanks for joining me, I'm always interested in people's stories. So if you could kind of briefly just tell me a little bit about your roles, that would be fantastic.
1: As you said, I'm the head of evangelism for search at Microsoft. It pretty much means that I am in the weeds and the nitty gritty for all things related to search, both organic and paid. So I work in conjunction with Microsoft advertising, understanding tools, platforms, how marketers should be using various aspects of search to get in front of customers and consumers and to really engage with their audiences. And on the organic side of the house, I work with our webmaster tools team to help them understand What is needed within the SEO community? What are the challenges SEOs face? And how do we build better tool sets in order to help them understand how we are indexing and discovering content across the web? So I've been both an SEM and an SEO, which is pretty rare. You don't hear a lot of the intermixing Mm -hmm. of those two, but I'm one of those (laughs) I'm one of those weird individuals who decided to branch off and do a little bit of both. So,
0: Jeremy, give me a little a little bit on your role.
2: I head up innovation for iProspect US and You know, innovation means seeing around the corner, understanding what's coming next and what the implications are. But because iProspect is the performance arm of Dentsu's media pillar, that means I have the added challenge of figuring out what the heck to do about it today. And so working with our clients to understand what's coming tomorrow and what they should do today to leverage those trends and drive performance in a tangible way that actually makes everybody more money. Yeah.
0: So you guys just published something together, which is really interesting. And I I know it takes a lot of work and time and effort to get these things done. It's a a research piece entitled In Brands We Trust. It's a really interesting look, kind of around the the changing dynamics around privacy and trust. And then I'm going to inject the word in here too, and I want to get your reaction to it. And that is truth. So, where I want to start is kind of what are the big highlights and key takeaways of the report? Jeremy, maybe we'll start with you and then we'll have Christy jump in.
2: The real genesis of this report stemmed from some questions that we were actually asking each other and trying to figure out as far back as last fall. So obviously, privacy is a hot topic globally. GDPR was a couple of years ago, but in the US, the California Consumer Privacy Act was coming on board and there was a lot written about it, but it was all written about if I can be frank, how you can cover your ass, right? How brands should prepare for it. So they're not legally culpable for screwing up. Yep. But there was a gap in the market of, okay, great. We're talking to brands about how to update their privacy policy and get their lawyers going and activate them and what the implications are on their tech. But there was nothing. There was a vacuum of what consumers actually knew and thought and believed and desired out of privacy, and so that led us to do the studies that, that powered this paper where we went out to consumers. And quite frankly, we even had to reset some of our assumptions as the language we were using. We we're like, okay, we need to even walk this back a few steps. So yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting findings in the paper, but the most interesting finding for me was really how many steps you have to move to get out of the marketing and tech mindset when you're talking privacy and actually to be able to engage in a conversation with the average person.
0: Christy, what sort of jumped out at you in this?
1: I think there's two areas that really jump out. First is on the topic of privacy that consumers have gotten so used to just clicking the button that they don't even realize anymore when they're, what they're really accepting and what they're authorizing for the acceptance of privacy. And the best example of this was one of the first questions we asked is, have you approved a privacy policy? Or have you read the privacy policy? Have you approved anything recently? About 20% said no. The problem was in order to start the survey, before they gave their name and information, they had to accept a privacy policy. Um, so uh, to me, it's one that I always use a little bit as a joke because, I mean, even on my phone, I can tell you every time I see it, I'm like, just click the button, go away. Yes, I know you accept cookies, all of this, just give me the thing I want to do. As marketers are like, no, they read through it. We, they fully understood everything we said. <laughs> we're
0: being transparent. Yeah, yeah we're yeah.
1: transparent. We're so right. clear with what we mean. I love that as the intro to the survey because then it's like, okay, did if they didn't understand that, what else might they not be understanding? From the marketer standpoint, <laughs> my biggest takeaway is the huge gap in the expectation of marketers and the expectations of consumers around personalization. So as marketers, we'd say, like we give them all these absolutely amazing things and we can talk about all the different layers of personalization, but when you get into the weeds of it, consumers aren't really... Understanding, they don't really get that personalization because either a, we're not being transparent about what we're giving them based on the data we're collecting, we're not consistent with the experiences we're giving, or they just have no clue what a personalized experience versus a non-personalized experience would be. It goes back to Jeremy and the marketers and tech point of view versus individuals who are not in the nitty-gritty of this every day.
2: Christy, I'll I'll, I'll take that a step further and say, you know, as marketers, we talk a lot about the value exchange. The problem with the concept of the value exchange, I'm not saying it's not valuable, but it was made up after the fact. It's a justification. So we're going to collect data in order to market more efficiently. And in order to justify that, we say, hey, this is the exchange consumers are giving us to this to get this back. The problem is no one ever has that conversation with the consumer. And so what you're left with is there's a lot of assumptions being made by marketers. And that's what one, one of the things this paper really highlights. I've got a question pulled up. One of the things where we asked, do you believe the benefits you receive are greater than the value of your data when you share it with a brand? Mm-hmm. And so 15% were like, yeah, I get more value. 37% said, oh, it's fair. And then 48% said, no, not at all. I'm yep. not getting what my data is worth. Yep. And then we're starting with this assumption as marketers that we built this value exchange system and we've named it and you know, consumers see the value in it and whatnot. When in reality, we just built it, stood it up, hid it behind a confusing privacy policy, and then go merrily on our way. Yeah.
1: And Jeremy, even on that side, I love the question that we proceed with that, which is, how well do you understand how different types of companies are using your personal data after you've done it? So we went by vertical and/or oh. industry and asked them. On average, it was about seventy percent of consumers said they have absolutely no understanding. <laughs> of how their data gets used. And which uh, to me, I think the surprising aspect of that question is we specifically asked about grocery stores, because I feel like that would be an area people should understand when you sign up for that loyalty and rewards account, that you get the discounts, you get the coupons, you get all that. I thought that would be like a pretend home run. And even there, it was still 68% of people, 69% of people said they have little to no understanding. We've been having
0: this discussion, you know, I used to work for an email service provider 175 million years ago. And so this is not a new question. Why are we still continuing to struggle with this concept of the value exchange? And why aren't marketers doing anything better to make that understanding greater and to make consumers feel like it's more
2: valuable? So I have a theory around that, that takes what we were talking about with the privacy agreement and extrapolates it into a message in market. And that's that brands don't want to paint themselves into a corner by planning and locking themselves into what they're going to do for the next year or the foreseeable future now. So that is why privacy agreements have like the Gilligan's Island wording is and whatever uses we may deem, et cetera. That's part of the lawyeries right? And the lack of transparency. But I think it's also with services, sign up for our loyalty program and get things like discounts, awareness of earlier, it's not giving you a menu of what you're going to get. It's giving you things that we may decide to give you if you give us your data because brands want to be able to pivot, right? If everybody uses the discount and all of a sudden you're upside down, more people redeem the coupon than you planned on, you want to be able to change course. But leaving that option takes away the transparency and the clarity with what you can explain the benefit to consumers.
0: Yeah.
1: I thought it was interesting because we we decided to, we ran the big survey that had about 24,000 respondents across 16 countries, but yep. then right after CCPA went public in January, we decided to ask Susie to get about 2,000 people in the U.S. to ask them some questions specific around the California Consumer Protection Act, like, are you aware of this thing that happened? Have you received the emails? And within there, we asked consumers, like, do you believe you should have the exact same experience if you choose not to share your data as somebody who chooses to share your data? And on average, it was something like 80% said yes. We think the experiences should be the same. And it goes back to the lack of understanding at the consumer level of how data gets used to Mm -hmm. either create personalized experience, et cetera. It was really interesting reading all the handwritten comments because that's where you started to see the technophiles versus my parents. Sorry, mom and dad. Because there's people like, we believe in equal rights. Why would we not get the same thing? And then you see the comments of like, of course, it wouldn't be the same experience. If I'm giving you my location data, you'll give me information about where I'm at versus etc. So it goes back to even at the marketer's level, we have this assumption that people understand A subset, the technophiles, do understand how we use and how data can be used, but the vast majority of consumers just aren't there yet, and we haven't taken them along that journey. We haven't educated them.
2: I'm going to pull out a specific quote from there, Christy. It's one of my favorites here. And again, this is the poll quote where we ask people to input, you know, free form. I don't think my data should be used as a bargaining chip for accessing information on a website. Doesn't seem very fair to me. So they're seeing providing data as a barrier to getting something. They don't understand that that data can be used to change the experience. They just think of it as a binary. Are you in the door or is the door locked?
0: Right. Liberate my data. I think a lot of times as marketers, we tell ourselves that we are intimately connected with insight and that we have a real ability to understand the human condition and human understanding and how people work and how they operate, what makes them tick. These are phrases we use constantly when we talk Mm -hmm. to clients and we talk to each other. And yet, when you sit here and you look at this situation, it does not scream that that is the truth. What needs to change about how marketers view themselves and how they do their work to be better?
2: There's a saying that I've heard several people use, so I don't know who I'm stealing it from. But it goes, we are drowning in data, but starved for insights. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit of a crusade that I'm on. There's an assumption that if you collect enough data either your data or third-party data, and you just throw it all together, you're going to learn something.
0: Yep. The holy grail theory of marketing. Yep.
2: Exactly. I don't believe that that's very valid. And I don't believe that those conclusions can hold weight. That's not to say that data is not valuable, but I think the best insights come from running a test, coming up with a hypothesis, going out and researching it, building data around it, accruing data, running tests, and then drawing conclusions from that. Versus just going out and grabbing a bunch of data and making assumptions. Yep. So anytime that you're drawing conclusions based on data that you've gathered or data that was not specifically targeted for this purpose, you're going to potentially wind up with erroneous results.
0: Christy, how can we get better as marketers? Like what, how do we need to change the function?
1: as marketers we need to go back to understand what is our mission what are our values and then understand who are our target customers who are our consumers what are their values so going back to the idea of if we're offering something we're exchange the value exchange we need to understand what the consumers value and reflect that in what we do then reflect that in our personalization the consumer experience making those experiences that meet not only our needs And maybe our needs aren't what we put first. Maybe that's where we go back at the marketer is the customers first. I mean, I laugh when I hear everybody's like, we're a customer first organization. Like, really, are you? (laughs) Even internally, we question this on a regular basis of, is this thing we're doing based on what we understand of our customer? Or is it based on, what we understand of ourselves. And okay. so it's going back and saying, you wanna be purposeful with what you are doing. And the purpose isn't just your purpose, it's adding the purpose behind the customer's intention, the customer's engagement, what the customer expects. At Microsoft Advertising, we're just going through and launching a marketing campaign called Marketing with Purpose. And that is going back to putting the customer at the center of everything you do, understand their intentions, their needs, their desires, and making sure that you are meeting that. And so we've actually been doing a ton of research. What Jeremy and I did was only a part of the overall research into tying into here to understand how do you do more inclusive marketing? How do you take Mm -hmm. inclusivity in terms of the wording you use, the audiences you target? How do you make sure that you're not excluding people just based on what you're doing? So I think marketers really need to go back to almost the basics of marketing and make sure that you are being inclusive, that you understand the customer and the customer values. It's not just your opinion on the customer. That way, you can be much more purposeful with what you're doing and how you're going after your marketing.
2: I saw, if I may, use this opportunity to i IProspect and Microsoft's you know mutual partnership. I just saw go this live great yesterday.
0: Endorsement part of the box, ah,
2: dude. But but it's. It's awesome because it is something that both companies truly believe in. And so it's fun to partner with this. MJ De Palma, who is the head of multicultural, multicultural marketing, marketing <laughs> put a blog post live yesterday that draws from iProspects Future Focus 2020 inclusivity research that we did. Yep. And she digs into the concept of de-averaging. So not building experiences. And this isn't just advertising. This is, you know, across brands and not building experiences for your average customer, because then it's built for no one. Sure. But then, you know, de-averaging. So little plug, go check out that blog post. Uh, I'm a big fan of MJ. And yeah, I, I really like what she has to say when it comes to inclusivity in marketing.
0: So this disconnect, we just sort of spent, I think a really interesting conversation talking about. What it sort of shouts to me is that the next sort of big part of what you talk about in the report, which is this concept of trust, how is it even possible or achievable when you have such sort of different focuses and this gap of understanding between the consumer and the marketer. How do we even get brands to trust when a sizable gulf
2: exists? So right now, I feel like trust with a brand, like the only change in trust for consumers with a brand is when something bad happens and trust is decreased. I feel like there's not a roadmap right now for brands to build consumer trust. You can build brand empathy. You can build admiration. But, you know, trust is there until it's given a reason not to be. And what I firmly believe, especially after digging into this data, is the opportunity for brands to build trust with consumers is around education. Because obviously consumers are not getting educated about their privacy from the governmental entities that are putting policy in place, and that's, that's fine. That's not necessarily their job. They're not going to get educated around privacy or they may not trust that education coming from you know monolithic corporations like Facebook or Google. They need to have policies, but they can't necessarily take the lead. So there's a big opportunity for brands to be more transparent in their privacy policies, but also to just educate consumers on their rights, their privacy rights as a consumer. It's something that I know will make some brands a little bit nervous, but I think that's the opportunity to turn consumer trust into an additive thing instead of a potential landmine that you're walking into.
0: You talk to brands all the time. What do you tell them about building trust?
1: We went in specific to a handful of verticals and asked about specific companies. So companies that you would know and companies that you you would on average say like, oh, I trust that company because of my experiences with them. And then tried to dig in to the consumers we were interviewing to understand what builds that trust. And really where it came back to is sort of around three correlated areas. The trust comes into brand love, brand loyalty, and authenticity. And one of the things we found is that the authenticity of the brand was one of the most important factors for the different questions we index when we're asking, do you trust this company? Are they authentic with how they engage, reach out? Do they live what they say or not? marketers just need to start thinking about, it goes back to the understand your mission, understand your values. How do you make sure that you're being authentic and bringing your authentic self into the consumer story? And so it's not just considered lip service.
0: We've spent a lot of time with our own brand thinking about the ways in which we need to drive a greater sense of advocacy with our clients on behalf of their customers. Mm -hmm. And we think both clients and brands and agencies have a, a much larger role to play there But that's sort of dependent on one other thing that's closely aligned, which is this idea of truth. I guess I'm wondering, while this study isn't necessarily about truth, it sort of is. Mm. (laughs) And I, I guess I'm wondering, did you have a conversation about truth in this? And if you did, what were the implications of that conversation?
2: From my perspective, that's the next logical step where we need to dig in a little bit farther. For a brand to be truthful, they're taking a risk, which is weird. Truth should be like the default. But in this modern world, I think for a brand to be that authentic and truthful, it's a risk that pays off. It stands out. Sure, It's going to alienate some consumers because truth is also based around like a belief or taking a stance. I know Chip Berg at Levi's, who I really admire, you know, has said, I intend to be an activist CEO. Yep. And so he is very clear in his feelings on gun control and on, you know, getting more people out and voting. And it's not just, Lip service—it's a proactive thing. I know that that probably cost them some customers, but there's authenticity and truth to that.
1: I think in similar vein, uh, the the one I always come back to with this is Nike. When Nike did the campaign centered Colin Kaepernick, and because that is very divisive, people either agreed with him kneeling or they disagreed with it. And so, by Nike choosing that as the as the moment of the campaign, you saw a lot of really upfront negative reactions to Nike using that, but then you saw a lot of positive outcomes in terms of consumers just reflecting upon that campaign and then mm-hmm. say, you had a bunch of people saying, I'm not gonna purchase Nike. And then all of a sudden you saw Nike shares go up and you saw this, the shoes were going off the shelves. So I think that's when you come back to the truth and authenticity and you're not afraid to be your authentic self and take the stand. It could go either way, but at least for the example of Nike, Hindsight, it was very positive for them to take that stand.
0: And by the way, I love the work here. I I think it's super exciting, and I'm really glad that you both joined me. I guess one of the challenges of it for you must have been that you completed it, you got it all assembled, you wrote it, you put Mm -hmm. it together, and you are now shooting it off into the atmosphere of Earth B, (laughs) where nothing about Earth A seems true anymore. And so I'm wondering, A, what has that experience been like? And then how do you think the context of the pandemic has changed what you've found?
1: Overall, even more so than previously, consumers are engaging digitally. And so the conversation of data, privacy, and trust is even more important today than it was prior to the pandemic. Totally agree. Do we think that the, the survey response would have really swapped Maybe a little bit because now people are actually engaging fully in the digital life. You have so many people that are working online versus in person that now maybe they are more aware and attuned to the value exchange or what yeah. they're getting off of exchanging data. So that might've changed or shift a little bit. I don't think it would be material or different then, but I would say a lot of the truths still hold consistent. What marketers need to do, it's even more important now that we are essentially living digitally and yeah. not out and in person.
0: I think you're exactly right. We did a pod a couple of weeks ago with our chief strategy officer, Kara, and he shared a, a stat, and I'm not going to get it exactly right. He's UK-based, so it could be a UK-based mm-hmm. stat, but 41% of people in the UK are buying groceries online for the first time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is staggering from a, you know, exponential leap into a fully digital life, right? Like the three of us live digital lives. Mm-hmm. Well, lots of folks don't, and to the extent that we are now bringing in all of this new cohort into a digital life, we're already, to your point, to the studies point, under educating or in a situation where we have undereducated consumers, and now we're bringing a whole lot more folks in. Yeah. So the the pressure point or the or the pressure valve gets ratcheted up even more in that scenario. It becomes that much more important, doesn't it?
2: It it does, and yeah, you know, I think that what I find interesting is there are a lot of trends that are happening, such as people purchasing groceries digitally, that they aren't brand new. And it's not that we didn't assume that that would accelerate, but the the pandemic has forced the acceleration. It has forced the digital transformation to occur much more rapidly. And so the brands that were leaned into it and were preparing can reap some of those benefits and the brands that weren't are scrambling to keep up. But what I think is most critical right now is with everyone's routine upended, Everyone is establishing new rituals and traditions. therefore, right now is not only the biggest opportunity but the biggest risk yep. to get data and privacy right. One of the things that we dug into a little in the report was what do people say versus what they do? Mm-hmm. So if there's been a data breach, are you aware your data was breached? and did you change your behavior? I was you know thinking back to you know various brands and grocery stores where people just still shop there because it's on their way home from work. Sure. Right. So that's a ritual that's hard. That's a tradition that's hard to, you know, get momentum to get people to change, even if something bad happens. Right now, everyone's schedule and traditions and rituals have been upended. So if they have a bad experience with a brand or a brand doesn't respect their data, it's easier than ever to cut over and make that switch.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, you know, one of the things as I was reading the report that, that jumped out at me was this sort of risk associated with breach and how, there's no perceived risk until such point as it happens. And then it's just an unbelievable sort of movement in behavior Mm -hmm. after it happens. And so, you know, when you take that into account and you apply it to a massively potentially increased population of people participating, the risk is through the roof. You're you're not just talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, Oh, those are the digital, you know, that's the digital 30% of my business or 40% of my business. You're talking about the entire business. Yeah, That's a huge kind of shift in risk management. Christy, I want to ask you, Is there anything in this that you think the crisis of this moment might accelerate or somehow change materially for brands?
1: I think the biggest change what Jeremy hit on is digital transformation. You have the brands that were already going down that path to understand how to engage digitally with consumers and customers and how do they set that up in such a manner to collect the information they need, use the information to deliver experience. They had thought through this. They have, I'm assuming... Maybe this is because I have my marketer hat on. I know how I do planning. I'm assuming they have a very concise roadmap of what they need in order to deliver on a set experience versus I know business owners, even in my small, tiny community that were like, oh crap, now I've got to do an entire remote. I own a gym. I've got to have an offering in the next week or else I'm not going to be uh-huh. maintain my business. Yeah. So now I have to do this thing and I've got to run and do it without really having that roadmap planned. So yeah. I'd say, I think the biggest transformation is just in the adoption of everything across the board. Adoption Mm -hmm. of tools, adoption of technology, and the fact that everybody, I mean, literally every type of business is jumping in feet first while they are trying to figure this out. So the businesses that had a plan in advance are going to be much further down the path in order of building trust, making sure they have all the processes set up in place to make sure that the data is safe, data is secure, understanding tools and platforms. I think something that, Jeremy, um, you speak at events, and I know I speak at events, something that I find is really interesting is right now, every event has gone virtual. So yeah. where you have a podcast, you research technology to use for that podcast, how to host it, you have all these event companies that thought they were having an in-person event sometime between April and whenever. December, <laughs> December. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I, I wanted to say September, but it sounds like even now, some of those September events are looking at going virtual. Yeah. They've had a month to find a tool and a technology that has the ability to onboard them (laughs) to swap their entire completely pivot everything. And so when you think about like, especially as we talk about data breaches, there are a lot of things up in the air in terms of understanding technology, capacity, limitation that I'd say brands just probably haven't had the time to really dig in and research because they are trying to pivot their entire business on a dime to make sure that they can maintain their business.
0: So what you're suggesting is 120 days from now, don't be surprised.
1: (laughs) On behalf of Microsoft, I'm probably legally not allowed to say that. Not
0: in in you, but I mean, again, I think your point is well taken. It's like, all right, the flip side of 41% have bought online for the first time is some unknown percentages Mm -hmm. of businesses are doing something, you know, in a fundamentally more remote, digitally oriented way. And you're right. They are dumping all kinds of stuff into a shrunken vetting Mm -hmm. process at the Mm -hmm. very least. And who knows what that means?
2: The most important takeaway from that, because I'm going to sound very negative here, but a data breach, you know, looking into the far future, it's an inevitability for a business. Something is going to happen sometime. So I think it's less about second guessing your choices as you move quickly and more about, do you have a documented plan in place for when that happens as far as who owns comms, what you do? You know, as a consumer, if there's a data breach, I look at the back of my credit card, I call that number, I get it taken care of. For you the brand, if the data you are, have on behalf of consumers is breached, do you have that you know, piece of paper you can flip over and get everyone on the same page? That's the most important thing to build.
1: Yep. And that's really what we hit on in the paper when we talked about data breaches is what is your comms plan? As yep. a marketer, you need to have that plan in place. Before a breach happens, you yep. need to start having everything documented out. And that's where I think we have a total of 10 steps you did before the mm-hmm. breach, during the breach, yep. after the breach. Because right there, that is your opportunity for consumer loyalty, and maintaining the trust. What we found was 85% of consumers said that their relationships changed following a data breach and 65% said they stopped doing business with the company.
0: Yeah,
1: so you don't yeah. want to be part of that 65%. So yeah. by having your communication plan in advance, understanding how do you speak to the consumer,
0: sure.
1: run the ability to not be part of that 65%. What are
0: the regional and sort of uh, age... Differences that kind of fall out of this study, you know. There, I know there's a couple. Could you just highlight those, Christy? I'll, I'll ask you first. What jumps yes. out of there?
1: I think my favorite takeaway, which I was not expecting whatsoever, and we had the analysts rerun this several times to make sure <laughs> this was correct, was that the youngest cohort of the survey and 55 plus are actually more alike than you would expect in terms of understanding data and their preferences around data. So, the the individuals who are essentially living a digital life today understand how data can get used and is getting used, their perceptions and how they view things are very similar to the 55 plus age category. I was not expecting that whatsoever. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, have that. <laughs> and that's, I'm like, run the data again and again. Are you certain we have not done something incorrectly here? Because I was not expecting that. We were trying to put together a magic quadrant of, you know, laggards, (laughs) adopters, and it's like, why are these two dots so close together every time we run this? There has to be something incorrect. I think the other thing that I thought was pretty interesting outside of the age bracket is that regionally, Europeans, while they've had GDPR the longest, so they've had the most in-depth privacy policies, they are also still the most concerned about their data.
0: Yeah. And that's been true for a long time. And I don't know whether it's the regulatory compliance orientation of Europe or whether it's because there's so many different markets and there's some level of mutual distrust within the, the EU and that area, or I don't know what it is, but it's been like that for 20 years.
1: My expectations, and maybe it's because I'm an American, is like, I would assume that we have more distrust about data since we, yeah, we don't have we really, no...
0: We're one of the most, I mean, we're like, hey, you know, everybody, whatever. <laughs> we're very laissez-faire about it. At least we used to be. Jeremy, from your perspective, anything regionally that jumped out or anything among generational splits?
2: I think the the thing that jumped out at me most regionally was the fact that you had to double-click down a few levels to really start seeing the variances. For the big questions, are you concerned with the amount of data that's shared? Do you feel you know obligated to share data? It was pretty consistent across Latin America, EMEA, APAC, and America. So those high-level questions, there's a lot of similarities between regions, and that surprised me because I expected different maturity of markets to have different levels of concern for the high-level questions. It was really only when we went down to, like, for example, we were talking earlier, the value exchange, what do you prioritize that we saw in in LATAM, like free samples was rated much higher than in other locations. So you had to dig a little bit to get to the differences, which I I thought was
0: interesting. To kind of wrap this up. What's the one piece of advice that you would give to brands in this moment? Christy, I'll start with you.
1: So my one piece of advice to brands would be to really start to think through, do you need the data that you're collecting? Mm -hmm. How are you planning on using it? And how do you actually then make sure that what you're doing with the data that consumers understand and you're providing value back to the consumer at the end? If you're not providing value, why are you collecting it? What are you doing?
2: Sure. The the one thing that I would say brands to do is kind of a call to arms, which is pry ownership of the privacy policy and agreement partially away from the legal team. <laughs> when we spend so much time doing people-based marketing, personalizing the experience and personalizing the targeting and building these consumer journeys, and then as soon as someone chooses to engage and take that next step, what do we hit them with? We hit them with this page of legalese that does not serve the consumer at all. It only protects the brand. That's a pretty big barrier. What I've found, and this is anecdotally survey group of one for me, when I see a brand, I understand the necessity of the legalese privacy policy. When I see a brand that leads with an explanation of it in plain English, this is our privacy policy. We include this so that we can do this and do that. Like it's not replacing the legal definition. It's supplementing it and holding my hand and at least explaining what it is. That makes me lean in. So I'm like, okay, this is a necessity, but this is a brand that's trying to make it a more pleasant experience. And so I I challenge every brand to at least take that step.
0: The incremental brand value of those kinds of things in displaying empathy and humanity and understanding are, are I think, always, always undervalued by marketers. I think you're right.
1: Would you rather read legalese or live your life? That's the question I like Mm -hmm. to ask back to our team.
0: It's a little long for a t-shirt, but maybe we can get it there. (laughs) All right, lightning round. These are short answers to short questions in theory. In the past five or six weeks, we have all been one place, and that is at home. So these questions all apply to the past six weeks of self isolation. What has been your favorite app? Jeremy, we'll
2: start with you. It is an app I recently downloaded called Forest. You open it up, you plant a tree, and then for the next 25 minutes, you can't open another app on your phone or you destroy the growing of your tree. I had to do that to psychologically trick myself from not constantly refreshing the news. It helps. It's called forest forest.
0: I love it. I love
2: it. Christy.
1: I'm going to have to say chat books. I've had the chance to actually create the little print books for my four year old from his baby all the way up through my current baby. So oh. I I'm, I'm getting all my skills. Scrapbooking.
0: Scrapbooking. And you're sort of in it. So you may not have made this observation and you're probably better parents than we are. But I'll make this observation of our children. Our son is three years and change older than our daughter. His baby book filled out. Every page has stuff in it. It's jam packed. It's this thick. Her baby book, a little thinner, <laughs> little little thinner. And by about you know, six or seven months, it's crickets.
1: I actually was bad at both. But better better than my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law, when we had our son, she gave us my husband's baby book, which literally had his name written on the first page. That was it.
0: (laughs) Favorite TV show to binge through this time, Christy. Dark. Dark. I'm unfamiliar. What is it?
1: It is a German show that Netflix has. That
0: sounds uplifting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's time travel, sci-fi i don't know how to describe other than weird time travel sci-fi
0: interesting jeremy favorite uh, tv show to binge during this time
2: so as a parent of a 10 year old it's you know part of my responsibility to ensure that she's exposed to the great touchstones of western literature and film so we've been watching buffy the vampire slayer perfect
0: favorite piece of content
2: consumed jeremy ted chiang is my favorite science fiction author working today His newest collection, Exhalation, is brilliant. You may know him as the guy who wrote the story behind the movie Arrival. I would recommend his short fiction to anyone, full stop. It's brilliant. Got it.
1: Christy, what do you got? I was going to say cookies, but I don't think that's what you're talking about.
2: You know what? That's the best answer we've ever
0: gotten. Yes. When this is all over, or at least to the next stage of semi-over or semi-open or semi-hopeful, what's the one thing you're looking forward to the most?
1: A huge party
2: with a bunch of friends. Mm. Amen to that. Jeremy. Playing jazz with a group of musicians. There's just Uh, no way to replicate that virtually.
0: No, there's not. There's not. I love those answers. Listen, I cannot thank you enough. Christy, thank you so much for making time. Jeremy, thank you so much for making time. Before I forget, where can folks find this report?
2: You'll be able to find this on the Microsoft Thought Leadership sites and the iProspect website.
0: Microsoft Thought Leadership Sites and the iProspect website. All right, awesome. Thank you both so much for coming. Please stay safe, and we will see you real soon.